Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm really pleased to introduce our guest for today's interview. They will be exploring how China considers the views and interests of small states and how collective action can or might influence change in China's behavior. Let me briefly introduce our speakers. Xinhao Huang is an associate professor of political science at Yale and US College in Singapore. His research and teaching focus on China's foreign relations, the international relations of East Asia and international security. He is the author or co-author of three books, including his latest, Power and Restraint in China's Rise, which has just recently been published by Columbia University Press. Moderating the interview will be Carl Minzner, Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor at Fordham Law School, specializing in Chinese politics and law. And another credit to him, at least in our estimation, is that he's a National Committee Public Intellectuals Program Fellow. Carl, the floor is all yours. Thank you so much, uh, Jan, for that very wonderful introduction. It's certainly been a pleasure to be affiliated with a National Committee for so many years. And Xinhao, it's very, uh, very, it's my pleasure to get to see you again. I remember you from some 15 years ago when we were both at CSIS together in different capacities. And it's my real honor to sort of review your book. And I just received it in the mail, the paper copy. I've got the, but this is the book that we will be talking about, Power and Restraint in China's Rise. And it's a fascinating look, in my opinion, at China and ASEAN or Southeast Asia's interactions, particularly around the issue of the South China Sea. And, and, and in the, having implications, in your view, for how we should understand how China takes its foreign policy decisions and what it makes of the opinions and the views of its smaller neighbors. But before we get into that, maybe I can just ask you a little bit about the about the title. I mean, you're calling it power and restraint in China's rise. Where's the restraint? I mean, you know, China over the last decade, full-scale militarization of the South China Sea. What in your mind, when when you're what in your view is emblematic of the restraint that is taking? Thanks, Carl. And uh, let me also join you in thanking uh, Jan and the National Committee for organizing this talk over a podcast Zoom interview. It's a great pleasure to see uh, old friends and new faces today. Um, so I'm very delighted uh, that everybody's here for this program. So to your question, Carl, um, I think the power aspect of Chinese foreign policy is well known. This is the part where we see double-digit economic growth rates. We see um, a rapid increase, a ramping up of militarization and investment in its people's liberation army forces. So that part we know, and there is a slew of literature, uh, pundits and uh, academic work that looks at this type of aspect of China's rise. But China is like any other country, and it also practices a wide range of um, foreign policy uh, approaches um, in its foreign and security policy, and one of which is also restraint, meaning the sort of forbearance, military forbearance, right? the non-coercion aspects, non-coercive aspects of its foreign policy. And I think this is important to recognize. It's not to say 
that China only practices power or only practices restraint in its foreign policy. Like any normal country out there, foreign policy strategy and statecraft will have a mix of both. And it's important to allow for this kind of variation in the analysis to help us better explain and understand how this variation takes place. What are the conditions under which China is more or less likely to exercise restraint? And if we know those conditions, how then can we try to replicate those conditions so that we can have an environment which is more conducive for China to continue that kind of non-coercive habit in its foreign policy approach. That sounds good, but maybe let's get, can we get down to the details. I mean, sort of specifically, you know, you're talking about a decade, almost a decade long period in, in the South China Sea. What are the examples that you would point to of China's restraint, i.e. not relying, not going pedal, uh, pedal to the metal, full on use of, uh, of all the force that's available to it? Can you, can you point to a couple examples in the South? That might be the thing things people are least familiar with, and then you can sort of offer your explanation about, but first give us the concrete examples that you're talking about. Sure. So I think the the uh, prime example, one of the clearest examples under which China is more likely to think about the non-use of force or uh, rethink its uh, the efficacy of the use of force in this foreign policy strategy in the South China Sea is in the case where it had a little kerfuffle with Vietnam in 2014. And this is an important example because these two countries have had a very long-standing history of territorial disputes, both on the land and maritime disputes in the South China Sea. Oh, you're talking about the oil rig incident, is that correct? Yes, this is the oil rig incident that happened where China's oil company planted an oil rig right at the edge in the corner of Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. So it sort of borders Vietnam's waters, but it's also sort of slightly in the international waters as well. Of course, as we know, China has always claimed that all that water belongs to itself. Vietnam also makes a similar claim as long as along with the other claimant states of the South China Sea, where there are overlapping maritime claims in this part in the Paracel Islands, around the Paracel Islands. So in this incident, what we saw was China proceeded with its action. It had an armada fleet of sort of paramilitary vessels that were at the horizon guarding the oil rig. And Vietnam was very alarmed by this incident when it saw that China was surging ahead proceeding with this action unilaterally and not heeding calls from Vietnam to stop this or unilateral change to the status quo. What Vietnam did, which is very interesting in this episode, was that it decided of all the options that it had, it rallied its neighbors together. And this is important to underscore that it went to all of the capitals in Southeast Asia, the 10 member states of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, to try to rally support and to get a clear consensus of all 10 countries, including those that don't have a stake or dog in this fight at all, uh, including countries that are long considered friends or allies or lackeys of China, um, got everybody on board to ensure that there is gonna be a firm, consistent, message and a consensus from ASEAN that this kind of provocation that China is imposing in the South China Sea with the oil rig um, is not acceptable. And it actually contravenes uh, some of the expectations about the norms of behavior in regional security. You're just talking about Vietnam getting the other countries to make some sort of statement, not even to sort of take any concrete action in terms of military 
anything like that. Right. And the statement is very important. And I think usually we would not think too much about the significance behind these kinds of statements again. But as we know, in diplomacy, every word, every sentence, every phrase, every comma, every period that gets put in that joint statement at the end of an ASEAN summit, where all the 10 heads of state or government convene, um, it requires the clear consensus of all 10 member states. And so if one member state, say Laos, for example, or Cambodia, uh, does not feel comfortable about the language uh, in which a statement is insinuating, sort of condemning or condemnation of China's actions, then they could very well veto and torpedo the entire statement. Then there will be no statement and there will be no outcome, a resolution or consensus from the group. Um, so in this particular incident, uh, Vietnam's joint diplomacy was able to rally all 10 member states together to issue a very strong and clear consensus amongst ASEAN members that this sort of action is not allowed and not acceptable uh, according to the preferred modes of engagement that Southeast Asian states are accustomed to, non-use of force, resumption of negotiations, diplomacy, and informal dialogue amongst diplomats and civilian actors. And that was important because it signaled and it provided a clear indication to the Chinese that this is not just a Sino-Vietnamese problem. This is actually one that has rattled the entire region where clearly there was a bit of an overreach of their activities in the South China Sea and following the statement's release and the consensus uh, conveyed by the region, China pulled back its oil rig ahead of schedule. So you draw from that sort of an indication that that sort of multilateral, the, eff the effort on the part of the success on the part of Vietnam in mobilizing the region made a difference in pushing China to curtail its efforts. That's the restraint example that you're talking about. Exactly. And the follow-on, the knock-on effects after that was also important to observe. We see the effects following the statement that China then resumed uh, its sort of senior level dialogue with ASEAN uh, officials to make a sincere effort to come to some sort of agreement about the next steps of the code of conduct uh, in the South China Sea, which is something that has been a work in progress for a very long time. But following that statement and that incident, we saw that China sort of stepped up its responses and engaged in good faith with its Southeast Asian neighbors to try to put a clear timeline on when this negotiation of the code of conduct would be completed, to start to put some content, some substantive content in which both sides would hash out and agree on as a uh, mode of conduct between parties to ensure safety and security in the region. Okay, so for you, that's at least one concrete example of how this sort of China restrains or alters its behavior, at least somewhat in response to a question. You've got a counter example in your book, which is the Philippines. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. This is the Scarborough, Scarborough Shoal example. Right. So this predates the, the oil rig incident by about a year and a half to two years. This is in 2012. And here, uh, this important uh, this incident is important to recognize as well because this is sort of the time period, what's a decade ago now, when issues in the South China Sea became uh, sort of it was always making the headlines. It started to make the headlines about uh, what was going on in this part of the world in Southeast Asia and what the Chinese were up to. It sort of awoken everybody that uh, 
the Chinese were serious about its maritime claims. It's always been making these claims in the South China Sea. But I think this was a watershed moment in which uh, the world realized that the Chinese are taking their word, uh, their uh, intentions very seriously. And here we saw uh, in its conflict with the Philippines in the Scarborough Shoal, um, it actually proceeded to overtake um, these shoals uh, away from the Philippines. Um, it actually mobilized uh, part of its paramilitary forces. Some of its naval forces were also involved in these operations in effectively removing uh, Philippine, Philippines military and security presence on that shoal and replacing them with their own um, um, military um, officers. So in this example, what we saw was that as a reaction to what the Chinese were doing, uh, the Philippines, under the last administration, well, the previous previous administration of uh, Aquino, um, made a very conscious effort to go directly to the United States uh, to invoke the mutual defense treaty between the United States and the Philippines, and wanted to make sure that the United States was going to have a very strong and visible presence to help deter further Chinese aggression following the Scarborough Shoal incident. Uh, rather than pivoting toward its Southeast Asian neighbors, uh, it sort of jettisoned that idea and went straight to the United States. Um, so in contrast to what Vietnam did, so you're saying that the exactly. Filipino response was a direct, this is why you're interested in the comparison between those yes. two, because you feel like this situation was the Philippines not doing what Vietnam did. Yes. So there's a very stark contrast, and uh, both uh, are member states of ASEAN, both uh, Vietnam and Ch Philippines um, have long-standing disputes with the Chinese in the South China Sea. So in many respects, this is a useful comparison to see how uh, the same conflict, the same issue area roughly uh, sort of yielded two very different responses from both uh, Philippines and Vietnam and how those decisions that the leaders at the time made actually had very different uh, outcomes, not just sort of in their approach toward regional security, but also in terms of how China reacted. In the Philippines incident in the Scarborough Show in 2012, uh, they sort of built up further tension as sort of a tit for tat and spiraled into a security dilemma because it was much harder to step down from the elevated tension and risk. and the inclusion of the United States into the conflict, the introduction of US forces and joint exercises with the Philippines meant that there was even higher stakes for China to double down rather than slowly or gradually de-escalate, which is what we saw in its approach when confronted by Vietnam and ASEAN's collective response. So now play out for me, because this, these are just two examples that you, you have others in your book. But you're offering these two as sort of an explanation for uh, for a broader theory of how Beijing operates, at least with respect to ASEAN in the South China Sea. Yeah. Can you play forward what those what the difference is between what you know, what does this indicate about how we should think about Beijing's diplomacy? Right. So I think the the one of the starting points of the book really is to try to understand how um, we have we have a lot of literature on coercion on the use of force in international relations. Um, but we don't have a lot of literature understanding about why states 
that have the capacity to use its military advantages might choose not to do so? And what is the rationale behind doing that? So really the premise of the book is set up to try to understand when it does restraint, when it actually tries to exercise non-use of force. And in the case of China, we saw this very clearly that there is a pattern of behavior that um, the use of force, excessive use of force, the re excessive reliance on its military or material advantages may not bring the kind of influence that it wants over the long term. That if it seeks and the desires legitimacy, which is the acknowledgement of it being an admired, respected, or responsible member of the regional and international community, then it's not always the case that might makes right, right. So the South China Sea is a great example because we see that there are times when it actually thinks that might does make right. There are other times when it actually realizes that influence can only be gained when it chooses to actually practice non-coercion. So this um, is one. This is one point in your book where I think I mean, you and I, I. I may not be fully on board with what you're, I'll, I'll sort of argue against you here. I mean. Sure. You use the term of legitimacy and sort of make the argument that China is seeking right. legitimacy. But I've got when you the, the, the two examples that you put out there, I think you could also try to explain them in a different way, which is that, you know, China, as a realist political actor, one of the things it's most worried about is bandwagoning from its neighbors. It's really concerned that you could get a united front of all of its Southeast Asian neighbors to ally against it. And so when it's confronted with something like the Vietnam example, where one, one actor has successfully managed to get all of the other actors in the area to indicate mm -hmm. that this is a problem. China, like any other realist actor, will back off of it because it's here. But conversely, if the Philippines seems to be isolated and seems to be alone, even if it perhaps has some support from the United States, that is a sort of a lone actor and China feels more emboldened to press its claims against that single country. Wouldn't that, rather than the language of legitimacy, couldn't you also use realist political language to sort of explain some of those, uh, some of those patterns that are taking place? So I think that's, that's one way to look at it. And, and the reason why I would say that it's not quite the case, it's not quite the same thing in the sense that the motivation matters here. Right. So if we can cultivate a sense, a habit of restraint or non-coercive practices in Chinese foreign policy, that if this habit of restraint is a function of diplomacy, of interactions, of dialogue and diplomacy, right, and most importantly, the exposure to the consensus of regional security norms, right, if that's what induces China to practice restraint, um, then the motivation there is very different from a very sort of strategic, functional, uh, material-laden uh, one. Because here, when we are thinking about why China decided to not use force or violence when it could, right? Um, the fact that they chose not to because of this exposure to regional security norms, I think that's important to recognize. Um, and the more we can replicate these conditions, right, the more we can then push back on that sense of desire to 
quickly solve or address every problem with material aspects. And I, I think I can see where you're going in your book, because one of the things you point out is, you know, that your Philippines example, you, you are more hesitant to sort of say that the U.S. resort to what I think you call deep engagement, which is, you know, U.S. pressure, you view that as kind of a, not as helpful to resolving problems or pushing China in particular directions as the co- collective pressure from ASEAN against China in, in particular. And you're, you're, you're resisting me and saying the pressure against China, but it is, it is the greater extent of ASEAN unity and presenting China with a coherent set of right. questions that you think has an impact on Beijing, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 maybe I can also move from this to sort of ask for some of the implications in terms of what this might mean for policy implications going forward. I'll first let you answer as you would like, and then um, then I'll, I'll throw in a couple of questions of my own. So, but like, what do you think this means in terms of where foreign actors seeking to affect China's behavior should go in terms of trying to prod, push, induce China in a better direction? Right. So I think this is, I, I think about this a lot too, because obviously as academics, we want to have some policy resonance uh, with our work, that it's not just sort of, you know, in the ivory tower, sort of where it's just theorizing um, and making, coming up with hypotheticals. Um, but I think in real life, if, if we're thinking about the future of engagement with China, um, if the book is right and the argument and the logic holds, right, then the sort of go it alone approach in trying to uh, get China on board on following any sort of uh, pressing international issues, be that climate change, be that arms control, or be that the South China Sea. Um, we want to make sure that we have a collective group of states, and most importantly, not just the developed North, not just the United States or the European Union, as important as they are, um, we also need to see that there is buy-in from the developing South. The more we can garner international collective support on a particular set of norms, uh, the better. Right? Because, because Beijing responds to that. Right, because it raises uh, the cost, the social cost for China to ignore those uh, large calls from the international body at its own peril. Right? If it wants to really demonstrate its desire that its rise is going to be see in a more positive and constructive light, then it needs to pay attention to issue areas where there is a very strong body of participants joining in together to ensure that there is consistency in the message between the global north and the developing south, that there is a collective consensus that's driving this effort. And that would make a very strong case in persuading the Chinese that this is something that they can get on board um, and that they won't feel like they're being ostracized uh, unnecessarily or they're being sort of uh, told you know, in the sort of finger-wagging approach that they need to do this because uh, the United States is telling them to do so. Okay, and I ask you two harder questions, which is, I mean, sure. sort of, you know, my, my, when, I read, when I read your book, I mean, one of the other things I was thinking is that, you know, and this is probably me spinning your argument in a more aggressive way than you would want, is, is that basically Biden's diplomacy vis-a-vis Russia in the fall of 2020, uh, fall of 2021, uh, winter of 2022, basically getting the Europeans together vis-a-vis Russia 
is perhaps the right approach in South China Sea, Southeast Asia, the, you know, non-unilateral, don't be the United States alone, but rather attempt to organize and identify and convince local regional interests that this is an interest to you. And perhaps that then would be the correct approach that you might be pushing. I'm not sure that you quite go as far as I want, but I'm trying to see if I can nudge you say, hey, that, that, that's kind of, that kind of U.S. plus regional actor is indeed the correct way to, to respond. Right. So if, yeah, I think I, I, I would agree with you on a lot of points there that the future of U.S. leadership and this, the, the term, you know, the notion of legitimacy, right? What, what makes the United States a powerful and respected country in the world? Um, it's definitely not just its excessive reliance on its military force as overwhelming as it is, it might be, and it is. Um, that's not actually the source of US leadership and legitimacy. People look up to the United States for direction, for authority, because the United States is able to lead with a coalition of a broad array of states uh, from the global north and the global south uh, in a joint endeavor and a multilateral approach. Uh, we are seeing aspects of that in the Biden administration. And you're right to point out that um, Russia is a great example where uh, it wasn't a US go it alone approach. It was trying to coalesce a large number of states uh, to condemn Russian activities, Russian invasion, and to press Russia uh, with a number of states collectively using sanctions uh, in a broader way so that a large number of countries are working in concert um, to try to make sure that those sanctions have teeth and have effect. In the Asia Pacific or the Indo-Pacific as this administration would like to call it, um, uh, their desire to regain some sort of footing in this part of the world is gonna be, uh, it's gonna be contingent on the US ability to lead by example Right? and to regain its leadership role in the region uh, through multilateral efforts uh, in trade, in particular, its Indo-Pacific economic framework is a step in the right direction. It doesn't go as far as, as uh, promoting a, or, or going to the lengths of a free trade agreement with countries in the region, uh, but it does set up a framework which addresses a lot of the global inequities in, and, and the issue of supply chain and fair access. And all these kinds of things are gonna be important. Um, but the United States is not just sort of doing it by itself. It's consulting members in the region, what it wants to see in this economic framework, um, what it would like to see more from the United States in terms of uh, leadership. So that's, that's an important recognition. I mean, I guess if you want. Uh, no, but... and I, I have, I have one other. Just, I mean, I know that our time is limited, but I have sure. at least one other question I have to ask, which is, your book is very much a portrait of China as a realist political actor responding to international pressure in certain ways. Um, and you know, we were talking about the example of Russia, and I just have to ask, you know, as China swings back, as Russia has more towards a one-man rule political model, information flows. Uh, up to the top. I mean, people did not, many people did not think that Putin was going to start a war with Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, you could argue that that wasn't like a necessarily in Russia's interest. 
does does your evaluation of the correct approach vis-a-vis China change at all as its domestic political system begins to shift more towards a one man? Are you more are you more concerned, doubtful about the ability of such signals to shift behavior in Beijing when you now have sort of it's a depend it's all depending on to a certain extent what Xi Jinping thinks. So I'm cautiously optimistic uh, in the sense that I think it's still important um, that uh, if we think about the future of engagement with China, that we maintain this kind of collective external pressure or incentive uh, to reach out to a widest pocket of circles and interests in China uh, that are involved in foreign policy decision making. Um, you're right that this is a very different era in China now with Xi Jinping at the helm. But what I also think is important to underscore is that the Chinese political system is a system that is governed by a collective leadership at the end of the day, right? As much as a lot of the spotlight is put on Xi Jinping, there are still factions, there are still mechanisms in place in terms of foreign policy decision-making that relies on um, leading small groups that rely on consultation between different ministries, Ministry of Commerce, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and of course, the People's Liberation Army. There was always gonna be hawkish and dovish factions uh, advising Xi Jinping on a number of these security issues. And so the more that there is a sort of collective external consensus on a particular issue that matters, um, the more likely it is that those in the Chinese decision-making circles that are thinking about how China can exercise its power through non-material means to gain legitimacy through non-coercive habits, that's important. And we need to try to identify ways to embolden those individuals, those uh, forces within China to make them confident that they can uh, provide sound advice to the leadership, uh, that this is just as feasible as a way for China's rise to attain the kind of respect, legitimacy, and international credibility, if not more than a sole reliance on the excessive use of force in its foreign policy. Well, I think that just about takes our time. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and to let me read your book. And I definitely encourage everyone else, if you're interested in uh, Professor Huang's uh, work, please read his book. And Thanks again to Jan Barris for allowing us to have this wonderful opportunity and uh, hope to do and hope to see, I will look forward to not necessarily hosting, but I will participate in or and watch many more similar events in the future. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Dr. Wong. Well, let me thank both of you, Chin Hao and Carl. It was a very interesting discussion and we really appreciate you both sharing your thoughts and your insights. I know I learned a lot and uh, I hope others did as well. I want to also thank, certainly wasn't just me. I, Chin Hao and I did um, communicate with each other early on, but it takes a whole village around here. So I want to thank the other National Committee staff members who worked behind the scenes to make today's interview possible. And we hope that all of you who are listening to this have found the interview both interesting and informative, and that you'll join us for future National Committee programming. Thank you all again. Bye-bye. 
For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.